Hey, Dylan Kelly here, host of the Wave Break Podcast. Excited to get into this episode, but first, here's a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of the Wave Break Podcast is brought to you by Clavio, the growth marketing platform most recommended by other business leaders. Listen, in uncertain times, you need to be supporting your community and growing relationships with your customers. It's going to be appreciated. It's going to be remembered. It's going to be shared. And in good times and bad, this type of communication that's open and empathetic with your customers is key. This is a key theme that we've been talking about at Waybreak. I've been preaching this on the podcast. And when you're communicating with your customers in this way, the best way to do this is with email. It is and always will be one of the best channels for delivering communication like this. And what I love about Klaviyo is that email is one of its core offerings. And their personalization that you can do inside Klaviyo is just, it can't be beat. And when you leverage that personalization driven by a 360 degree view of the customer, these emails are going to feel more relevant and they're going to drive even stronger relationships. And Klaviyo gets it. They're not just, you know, some company. They understand how challenging it is right now for every entrepreneur. You know, it was hard to get your business off the ground and navigating these times is even harder. And if you're feeling overwhelmed with growing your business, know that you're not alone. Klaviyo is here to help you build relationships across any distance for your brand and create memorable and meaningful email marketing moments that last a lifetime. And that's how you build a successful e-commerce brand. And this is why I love Klaviyo so much, because they're on the same page with me and Wavebreak. is like, we're not just about making more revenue. That's great. But what this is really about is an opportunity to create an amazing community with your customers. And the best way to do it is with email. And if you're not on Klaviyo, you got to get on Klaviyo. Visit klaviyo.com to schedule a free trial. That's K-L-A-V-I. IYO.com. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Waybreak Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Kelly, founder and CEO at Waybreak, the email and CRM agency for high growth brands. We work with some of the fastest growing DTC and e commerce brands, as well as retail brands, and help them up level their email and SMS marketing strategy so they can diversify their marketing mix and grow faster with more confidence in today's market. You can learn more about partnering with us at wavebreak.com. That's W-A-V-E-B-R-E-A-K.com. Today on the show, I'm super excited once again talking with another e-commerce leader on the marketing podcast for high growth direct consumer e-commerce and retail brands. Today joining me is Chad Meyerson, CEO at Ruli. Really excited for this episode. We cover everything from how he's thinking about inventory these days with all the different supply chain challenges that have been happening as well as implementing a try before you buy program so selling their products for zero dollars and then charging people based on only what they keep they've been running it two years he reveals all the data around that as a fashion brand and and what that looks like for growth and as well as the cost and so much more in between those two topics there's a lot so let's jump right into it thanks so much for coming on the show chad Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, Dylan. Appreciate you inviting us and happy to share a little bit of the insights that we have in this space. Yeah, I'm excited to talk. The story, it's a good story. So so let's start there. What, Where did Ruli get its beginnings? How did it start? So about eight uh, years ago, Ruli began as what was called Bellamy Boutique, a very small brick and mortar location selling women's clothing in Northern Utah. And husband and wife team, Chad and Kylie Ch- Champlin took over that boutique, started to grow it, and very quickly learned that e-commerce was really the future in this space. And an opportunity arose with the combination of e-commerce and social media growth. And so uh, established the name Ruli, decided to create Ruli.com, an online presence, and really start to grow the brand through social media and experience just a meteoric rise. Uh, huge increases in follower count, engagement, the ability to connect with customers, and really make it more of a story of female empowerment, feeling beautiful, no matter what size you are, what color you're wearing, what it is. And so the brand became less about clothing and more about uh, this community um, that was being built. And so a lot of growth, we maintained one store uh, in this hometown, but really e-commerce became over 90% of what we did as a business. Uh, I joined about three years ago, uh, overseeing the marketing side of the business and really helping diversify. I came in with the idea that, hey, social media is great. What you've done to date is great. Let's capitalize on that and grow. But we have to diversify our marketing mix to ensure the longevity 
of this company. Just because we're seeing meteoric growth through this channel here doesn't mean that will continue forever. And so we made a conscious decision to diversify our marketing channels to really hone the business side and, and get our really get disciplined, if you will, from an operation standpoint to ensure the longevity of the business, which turned out to be very fortuitous just because of the timing and what happened with the pandemic, making sure that we had a lot of those pieces in place before the entire e-commerce and retail landscape shifted. So uh, and then about a year and a half, two years ago, I took over as CEO, uh, running the day-to-day -day business here at the company. Uh, the founders, Chad uh, Champlin is still the chairman of the company. A lot of strategic insight there. His wife, Kylie, is very involved in the day-to-day -day strategic vision and creative side of the business. And, uh, and here we are in 2022. Kind of fighting our way in this space that's a very different landscape than it was when I joined several years ago, but one that can be managed in a way to really have a brand like ours continue to grow. Yeah, that's awesome. And I want to talk a little bit about your transition into the brand too, because it wasn't a traditional like consumer product background. Tell me about that. Like what what was your background? And then like what was the transition like joining the brand? And how did you how did you even get involved with it? Sure. So my background is in travel. Uh, I started out uh, very young in the travel industry, working for an airline for JetBlue, uh, ran several divisions there, learned the business on the revenue side, understanding demand uh, and forecasting and supply. And so really learned that side of the business, transitioned to a sales and marketing background on the airline side and ran all of the sales department, both corporate and leisure for the airline, as well as was the executive over all of their Latin America Caribbean business, which was just a great experience, great learning opportunity, fun travels. I mean, it was phenomenal. This is early 2000s. Um, There's just a fun time to be in that industry. Spent several years there, um, actually transitioned to travel tech uh, about eight years ago. So it was you know building websites to sell travel, whether it be that air, hotel, cruise, things like that for a, a tech company in Utah. And then kind of by happenstance, just happened to know somebody that was working in this industry. This, the Ruli brand had really grown exponentially previous years, you know, two, 300% growth year over year in terms of uh, follower count and revenues. And so really was on a growth trajectory, but really looking to bring in somebody that knew marketing. And, you know, my view is if you can sell a plane seat or you can sell a hotel room, you can sell a dress or whatever else it is. Uh, it's really about looking at your landscape, looking at the, the, how the makeup of the industry works and capitalizing on the opportunities that are there. And so came in, learned, had to learn the industry, obviously. Uh, I'm, I'm not by nature huge in fashion or necessarily know that industry, but I learned a lot as we've, as we've grown with the company, but implementing a lot of the strategic opportunities uh, that I brought from my previous role into this business has just given it a different perspective, which I think was positive. Yeah. And then what was that like when you, you joined initially? Like you said, your plan was to help diversify it off the back of that successful initial growth. What did that look like coming into it? Like, did you know from your experience, like, oh, I want to expand into this, this, and this, or like, we're going to test all these things or like, how did you, how did you approach that? Yeah. So I think that I looked at it in a couple of different ways. One, you know, I came in very much pitching the idea that diversification from a marketing standpoint was critical. And, you know, I, I think the leadership of the company, to their credit, was very open to that vision. I think they looked at it with a little bit of justified skepticism because the previous five years, the brand had just exploded, right? They had been so successful in social media on the organic side, had dabbled a little bit in the paid side, but not nearly to the extent in driving value that the organic side was doing. And so I think there was a little bit of a thought, hey, why wouldn't this continue forever? And my contention was, hey, that's great. Let's use that. Let's grow with that. And let's capitalize on it. But let's not put all our eggs in that basket. Let's get into the other channels. Let's focus on our email channels. Let's get into the SMS space. Let's figure out, do we want our own native app? Do we want to diversify into all these different channels so that we're not as reliant on a single one? Should that channel change? Should the Because we don't control it, right? And so um, I think that they saw some opportunity vision there. It definitely took a little bit of time to have that bear full fruits because we we continue to grow with Instagram. That was a great channel for us for retail brands like ours. That was really important, but we saw some degradation in our ability to reach that organic customer. And so that meteoric growth began to slow. And so we had to look at our business very carefully and say, okay, well, where are we more profitable and really adjust uh, resources there. One of the other pieces that you know we can jump into if you'd like 
uh, in detail that I, I didn't actually send you previous to this, but I think is relevant to this conversation. Working with all the, you know, we as a brand, we manufacture a lot of our own products, but we also partner with a lot of brands and bring in their products. And so uh, one thing that I brought from my previous experience was cooperative marketing with different brands, which was new to the owners here, to the company, to really have never done that before. But, you know, the content that we create is really our bread and butter. The look and feel of what we sell is through our imagery and our content that we create. And so as we promote our brand and then we bring in other brands, there's an opportunity for us to work with those other brands to say, hey, look, a rising tide raises all ships. And so if we partner with a brand like Free People or Mia or some of these other brands that really have a strong presence, we say, hey, look, we're creating all this great content. Let's do it together. Let's create this content together. Have you helped subsidize some of these uh, creative projects? We can make it even, we can take it to a whole different level. And so that spawned some of these trips. So rather than just creating content here in our little town in, in Northern Utah, we took a group over to Spain and Sweden to capture content. We took groups, you know, down to the Caribbean for swim content. And so partnering with those brands, we were able to do that in a way that they loved it, right? We're going out and creating this great content for their products. We're taking those products and selling them. And so it really allowed us to grow in partnership with those brands. So that cooperative piece, you know, we had done that on the airline side for years and years and years, but on the clothing side, it just hadn't really been a thought process. And so bringing some of those just outside ideas and perspective to add a different element, a different angle, a different funding source was really something that just energized the brand. Yeah. And like, how did you do that? So you mentioned free people as an example. Is that something that you did in your previous role where you would like reach out to these companies? So like, does it tactically look like, oh, we're finding who runs marketing at free people and then like sliding in their LinkedIn DMs. I don't know if that was a thing back then, sending them an email or like, how does that work tactically? And then you convince them to spend the budget. Like you said, it's not traditional. That wasn't a traditional thing. I mean, it's still really not popular, um, you know, outside of like traditional retail and travel and things like that. Um, but yeah, how's that work exactly? Yeah, so in the in the travel sector, we did this a lot, right? So we were an airline and we wanted to fly to a new destination in Curacao, for example. Well, we're going to go to the Curacao Tourism Board and we're going to go to the hotel groups in Curacao and talk to them and say, hey, if we put a flight in here, your business is going to grow. So this is obviously beneficial to you. So let's work together. And, you know, obviously you want to grow, we want to grow, we want to make, make this successful. And so we would partner with them on, you know, bringing in media, bringing in journalists, bringing in, getting a lot of attention, putting paid advertising behind this so that when a new flight launched, it was getting all the visibility and attention that needed to make it a success for the long term, right? So transitioning that into retail, well, yeah, there are brands, Free People's a great example. They've been a great partner of ours. There, there are brands that we've worked with for many years and we've bought product from them. We buy it, we bring it in, we photograph it ourselves, we create our own content. It's our level, our internal photography team creates great content, right? We, we got that feedback quite a bit. And so it was actually a very natural transition to talk to their buying team that we worked with already on buying the product and say, hey, we're spending X amount with you. It's a great partnership. We love it. We want to keep seeing it grow. If we work together, we really believe we can grow this from X to 2X, right? And so you come in, you help us create even better content, elevated content, highlight yours. They got the visibility from promoting their brand, from the, the imagery and the content that we create. And so they saw that as just really an investment in marketing from their side. And so by partnering with them, we leveraged those relationships that we already had and said, hey, we want to grow this. And that's what we're able to do. And so utilizing those brands, you know, it was funny because when we had some of those conversations initially with some brands that kind of looked at us funny, like, well, we've never done that before in retail. To your point, it's common in travel and some of the other places, but on the, on the clothing side, they weren't as familiar with it. And so we helped build out what a strategy looked like, you know, a percentage of revenue that was being spent. And as we grow, we can continue to grow this. And now it's just a fully thriving piece of our business that we do several times a year. Yeah. And, and, and I like how you, you do it several times a year now too. Um, it's like, okay, so I'm guessing it worked. And now what does that look like? You're like, oh, we want X activations per year. And that's what you work towards. And that's how you think of it as like a scalable. Um, Cause I feel like that's a hard thing to scale like partnerships. It's like almost like influencer marketing. Like anyone can scale a Facebook ad budget like that, but like managing people in relationships like this is a lot, is, it's not quite the same. So yeah, how do you think about it long-term? Yeah, it really is. It, it very much relies on the relationship, right? And it's about fulfilling what you're fulfilling your commitment and driving the value, right? So if we, if we do a partnership with a brand that we want to sell, and you know if, if we can't deliver back the content that's just top tier, 
and, and great for them. If we can't deliver on the ad spend that we want to put behind these campaigns to really grow, if we can't deliver and say, hey, you know, we were here, but we grew to here because of this partnership, then that's not going to be long-term and sustainable, right? So it's really about, we have to be organized. We have to commit to what we can actually deliver. And then the content create just has to be top-notch. And so far, we've really been able to deliver exactly what they want. We've just blown away in terms of their expectation. And so it has allowed us to continue to grow with those brands. So delivering those results has just been key. And then the communication piece, hey, this is what we want to do. This is where we want to go. Getting their input. How do you? How do we make it better? What ideas do you have? Sometimes they'll come back with some great ideas. And so it's just allowed us to really take our content creation to the next level, um, but do so in a way that's you know not entirely just out of our pocket, which has been great. Yeah. And then tact- random tactical question, like, are these like, do they do these partners when they're larger brands? Are they paying fast or are these like net 45, net 90 style payments sometimes? You know, just from a logistics standpoint, you know, it's actually not too bad given the fact that we're buying product from them. So Got it. if okay. we're buying the product, we're already paying for certain things. And so they can do, you know, we can, we can make, you just do the quick math. Cleanly. Yeah. Okay. So it's not too bad at all. They've been, Got they've it. been great to work with. And, you know, as a percentage of what they're spending, you know, it's not enormous, but for us, it makes a difference because again, a lot of this content we want to go out there and create anyway, but when we do it in partnership with some of these brands, we're able to take it to a whole other level and just make it that much better. And so they see the value, they get the content, they see the visibility. We get to be able to subsidize these great ideas that we have on content creation and everybody wins. Yeah, that's awesome. It, it really is a win-win. Let's transition to now. One thing that you said was interesting is, uh, you know, imagery and content is ultimately what sells. And then obviously you have to distribute that content. The game today, like you said, very different from the game we used to play, uh, even just like a, a year or two years ago. How are you approaching growth today? And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor, Okendo. Okendo is the new standard in customer reviews for high growth Shopify brands. We use them with our clients and they work with over 5,500 of the fastest growing Shopify retailers like Skims, Nomad, and Buck Mason to help them leverage their most powerful asset, their customers. Okendo gives brands all the tools they need to capture and showcase customer-generated content like product reviews and ratings, photos and videos, and Q&A. Plus, they have an awesome integration with Klaviyo that makes it easy to do cool stuff like send review request emails and target shoppers based on review content. With super affordable monthly subscriptions, starting at $29 a month, it's really a no-brainer to me. Visit okendo.io to learn more today. That's O-K-E-N-D-O dot I-O, Okendo. Thanks, Okendo, for sponsoring the show. So we definitely look at it differently than we did before. And we, we talked about it a bit at the beginning, but we began our diversification from the, of the marketing channels earlier on than I think the industry required everyone to do, uh, which was helpful for us, right? Not having all of our focus being a single channel was very fortuitous that we understood that and tried to get away from that very early. Um, So, you know, the way we look at it now, we have to be present in several different channels. We have to be active and creative in those channels. And there really is no, I mean, we have ones that perform better than others by all means, like everybody does, but there really isn't one channel that we can just say, "Ah, I don't need that. And I want to turn it off. And so we do, we manage our budgets accordingly. You know, we talked a little bit about Instagram specifically, the way that their algorithms are working, our ability as a brand to get in front of even our own audience has changed dramatically, right? So to give you, to put some numbers behind it, the estimates now are that you can get a, an organic post can get in front of between three and 5% of your current audience. So we have about a half a million followers on Instagram. We can't get in front of more than 5% of them very easily anymore, which is hard, right? So from a visibility standpoint, as much as we have these great customers that love our brand, if they're not seeing it and they're not engaging with it, then it's not top of mind. And so it's, it's for us, because we, we do believe we create great content and it converts well, it's about visibility. And so if we can't get visibility like we used to from that channel, how do we get it from other channels? <clears throat> how do we get in front of them? How do we make sure that they are seeing us? You know, they're not going to buy every time they see an ad, but we have to keep that fresh content in their mind and reiterate it to them so that they do become a buyer when products come across, when they see something or when there, there is a need. And so having those channels so widely diversified into, you know, with a better focus on email, both blast promotions, as well as flows, SMS, you mentioned is, is that has become a huge um, 
focus for us just in terms of its ability for quick reach and conversion, but all of them work in tandem to be able to get those customers engaged through one source or another. Um, and without that, we would really be struggling if we were really so reliant on a single source. And then how do you think about that? You're like, okay, so we need to get this. Do you start with the content and creative? And then it's like, then we scale it out to the channels and like, what's the strategy overall? Cause um, you know, also in your space, like you mentioned, it's not so much about the clothes as it is about like the overall messaging and positioning that you're bringing to the market. Um, so like, how do you tie, so we kind of talked about content and we talked about the distribution, like how do you tie that all together into like what the brand is? Sure. So our content honestly continues to be very strong for us. And so that's been helpful. We, we've been able to create content that's good. The, the challenge there really has become what content is actually going to be both well-received, but also can be get out, can get out there. So to give you an example, you know, you think of Instagram, um, as, as a channel, it used to be still content that was just king. Well, then, you know, TikTok came along, changed that whole universe. Video content became so much more prevalent. And so now if you're not in the real space, if you're not in the IGTV space, if you're not in that space, it's harder to get that visibility. And so you have to not only have still content, which used to be our core business, you've got to have the video content. And so we've had to change a little bit what content is created. So that's on the one side. And then the second side is really about how do you get it to those customers? Because used to be able to just put out some organic posts or have a subsidized uh, paid search campaign and you could get in front of most anyone you wanted to. Now it honestly doesn't matter how much you spend, you're not going to be able to get in front of everybody. So it's creating those audiences, creating those engagement points to be able to reach them. And then, yeah, with the content that the platforms will support, right? So it's creating that video content. It's got to be new and it's got to be refreshed. It can't be the same old ad over and over again, um, but then putting in the channels that are going to reach them. And then that segmentation for us has been key, right? So people do want to feel a little bit of personalization, even if they maybe don't know that it's real, right? The you know, it used to be email, right? Like, hey, I can drop in your name. Dear Dylan, thank you for being such a loyal customer. Think about buying this dress, right? Like, no, that's not how it necessarily they want it. They want to feel like it's a little bit more personalized. And so that's where, you know, we talked a little bit about flows with, hey, if customer does X, Y, and Z action, we're going to trigger response A, B, and C um, through these different channels. And so the omni-channel approach, being able to reach them where they want to be reached, and then leveraging what the platforms view as uh, content that's distributable has really been where we focus all of our attention. Yeah, and that's huge. I, I like what you brought up in the personalization too. That's something we do. We've seen successful on the email side, um, which even something we call, this is like pro tip. I think I've written, maybe talked about it slightly, but like not really actually really publicly on the podcast, but something similar, like you said, um, you know, customers really love personalized content. The problem is personalized content is really hard to do at scale, but if you make the content feel personalized, it oftentimes has the same effect. So we call it faux personalization, um, you know, like French faux, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) but, um, you know, just using the word you or writing it as if you're writing to an actual human instead of just writing, you know, your typical retail email of like, here's some products by now has, we've seen really good effects and it's often a top performer in terms of revenue and scaling that out to other channels. We've seen our clients work well too. I mean, we don't, we don't touch those other channels, but can confirm like what you're saying about personalization. It's hard to scale, but even if you just make things seem personalized, you get the leverage of as if it's almost personalized too. Um, so you don't yeah. always need those resources. For sure. We, uh, I'll give you an example back to the travel days that I think relates really well. You know, there, we, we used to benchmark against a lot of the big brands out there, you know, the Expedia's of the world or the price lines. Um, and, you know, there was a great example, which was somebody took a trip to, I think, Costa Rica. And then for the next six months, they were getting all these emails about, hey, come back to Costa Rica. Hey, come fish here in Costa Rica. Come fish, you know. And the response is, well, I've already been to Costa Rica, right? Like you're not giving me anything new. So, you know, hey, well, what if we benchmark is that people that go to Costa Rica, they actually also really love to go to Honduras and Belize as well. So the ability to say, hey, you've been here. What do you think about this? It's a better experience than just, hey, you, hey, you bought this, so you buy it again. And so as we look at on the, that on the, on the fashion side, it's kind of the same thing, right? They buy a dress. I'm not going to go back to them and say, hey, you bought this dress. Do you want to buy another? Do you want to buy it in red? Do you want to buy it in blue necessarily? As hey, this is the kind of 
product that you're interested in, here's some other ideas or inspiration or ideas. And, and I think that resonates better because like you said, it feels more personalized to that customer than just regurgitating. Well, you bought this, so come back and buy it again. And it just makes sense. Like, I think we think too much like marketers sometimes, and we look at the data and then we forget the psychology portion of it too. Like just thinking through the, um, I forget the example, was it Puerto Rico you said? Costa Rica, but yeah. Costa Rica. <laughs> Not the same thing, but uh, I guess my, my ear here is one thing. Um, but uh, no, just like you said, like, but it also makes sense that that person, oh, I just went there, so I don't want to go back six months later, but it doesn't mean they're not interested in something else. Um, now that makes a lot of sense. So, same for us. It's like even just putting just for you in an email, um, new releases just for you does really well. You get a slight uptick. Uh, you can steal that. Speaking about another challenge in today's market. So growth's a lot different. You're not getting the engagement used to on Instagram. Inventory, supply chain, you know, that's the other challenge that brands have been facing now for the last couple of years. What does that look like for you in terms of balancing growth while also balancing inventory to grow and supply chain and all that? I know that's like a loaded question with so many different pieces to it, but uh, you know, we start at a high level and work our way into the details from there. Sure. It's definitely top of mind for anybody, especially that's running an inventory-based business right now. You have to be disciplined, but what disciplined means now, what discipline means in 2022 is different than it meant in 2019. You know, we operate in a very different environment and I think it's going to take some time for a lot of the supply chain effects of the pandemic and of the decisions from various governments to really normalize and get to a place where we all feel like it's steady state. And so that's why, you know, it's amazing. If you look over the last two years, there was a shutdown pretty much completely. Right. And then, excuse me, after the shutdown came this, Hey, we can't, you know, we, we have this stuff that we've been holding from the shutdown. Now we've got to move it out. So there's some discounting happening and then the supply chains got messed up and then everybody couldn't get their product or it's delayed. You know, it's not getting here in time for the right season. And so as those disruptions happen, there's a, there's a long-term effect. So for our business, you know, we, some of it, we do purchase from other brands, but some of it we manufacture as well and bring in. And as those supply chains are affected, it really does impact when you run a seasonal business, right? So there's a certain time when swimmer has to launch. If you want to ride the biggest wave and that's in February, if you're not, you know, even though it's snowy outside, that's when people are thinking swim. And they're thinking fall boots as they start going back to school, even though it's 110 degrees in August. And so if you're missing those windows, it's a huge challenge. And so we have really spent a lot of time trying to mitigate that. And and fortunately, depending on if you're buying domestically from partners versus importing internationally, there's some balance that you can strike there. But it certainly had a huge impact on our business because we have we now have to basically build in, you know, a six to eight week buffer in almost everything we import from overseas. Just because if we're if it's not going to get here at a certain time, we have to have a contingency plan for it. So it's almost like you're already preparing for X percentage of your inventory just to not be here when you want it, and that's a challenge. And you know you're you're reading reports now. A Target just came out with a great report, which was there. You know there's an inventory glut. You're going to see sales, even though inflation is on the rise. You're going to see great sales because they've got this inventory glut just because of the way the supply chain has worked out. And so as a brand that is an inventory based brand we have to be very conscious of that but what that's doing is it's it's causing a disparity because it's not every brand is dealing with it the same way right some bought heavy early on and then saw a decline and they're going to have an inventory glut some are having several delays and so they've been more conservative in their buying because they just know they can't get it here at the right time so for us we, it's really been a, a a delicate balancing act in just trying to make sure that we have the product that we have the selection to support it, but that we're not running ourselves into a problem with over inventory. And so it, it really is this balancing act. And, and I do think it will normalize, it will get better, uh, but it's going to take a little bit of time. And, and as we look forward in 2022, you know, there's a lot of, there's some pessimism about the macroeconomic environment and for a discretionary brand, you have to factor that in. But at the same time, you know, we're buying for six, eight months in the future. If we don't know six, eight months in the future, that's a hard place to be. Yeah. And and I totally agree with all your points. What are you seeing currently? Like you mentioned a six to eight week buffer from overseas. Like what do you, what do you mean by that exactly? So for example, if we've got a product that, you know, that's a very heavy summer product, right. That's going to sell well for 4th of July. That's a great example. We have some products 
products that we that do well for thinking of Fourth of July barbecues and outdoors things that happen in July and August. Well, customers want to buy those in mid June at the latest, right? Early to mid June, and so we typically we would order that. You know, maybe we're ordering that back in December or January for a June one arrival, and we say, hey, that's going to be great. Even if it arrives June fifteenth, we can still make that work, right? That's how it used to be. We give ourselves that couple week buffer. Well, now. I've got to buy that and it needs to arrive May 1 uh, or else I'm not confident it's going to get here. Now, it may show up May 1 and then I have to sit on it for six weeks. It may show up June You mean in the ports. And then, I've, and then I missed the win. Yeah, I mean, so that's the hard yeah. part is there's no guarantee. Uh, just because it shows up in a port doesn't mean it'll be at your door in two <laughs> days or 15 days. Yeah. Um, so just building those buffers in, it's hard because then, like, like I said, if it shows up on time, great, you have it, but then you're sitting on it. If it shows up late, you miss your window. So there's this balancing act of trying to say, I don't want it too early, but I can't get it too late. Yeah. Have you thought about or done it all like, oh, let's switch to air? Um, I know that's getting a lot more expensive, but you know, with that in mind, like what how how have you thought about that? Cause I know that's another, you know, it's still backed up and <laughs> crazy. But uh yeah, how do you think about like the different shipping methods within, you know, growth planning and all of this? Right. Yeah. So they're on a very select basis. Some styles we have done that just for very specific reasons. Um, but it is from a cost perspective, it is extraordinarily more expensive than sea freight. And so it's just, you know, we have to factor that in, right? We, you know, whenever we put the cost of goods on a product, we're adding in the shipping and tariffs and everything else, those, those costs into it, air still is very difficult to to justify just from a cost perspective. It's just so much more expensive. Yeah. And that makes sense. And then in terms of like planning, you mentioned like now you're buying like six to eight months in advance. Like, is that what it looked like for you in 2019? Like, were you planning that far ahead or, or not, not at all? So we've pushed it out further. Um, there, there's a couple reasons for that from our perspective. One, the, just the, you know, there are times where factories in China have shut down, shipping lines have been delayed. It's just, there's, there's so much risk in the supply chain. Uh, that's really the biggest driver of it. Um, the second one for us is a little bit more of an internal decision. And that is that we've uh, expanded some into the wholesale space as well. So we'll sell our products to other brands to then put in their boutiques. And so by moving that timeline further out, we have the ability before we have to place final orders, we have the ability to go out and pitch some of those products to some of our partners and say, hey, we're launching this new dress or skirt or top or whatever it may be. Are you interested in buying it? Yeah, I'd love to buy that for the spring season. So we can actually incorporate those orders from a wholesale standpoint into our direct-to-consumer model as well and get those order quantities up, which reduces costs. And so uh, from a planning standpoint, that's helped us on that side of the business too. But most of it, yes, has been driven by supply chain uncertainty. Yeah, and that makes sense. Are you ordering more inventory now as well? Like trying to get ahead? I know you mentioned some brands are doing that. I've interviewed some people on the podcast who are like, yeah, we're basically ordering like for twice as long of the inventory duration that we used to now. But then like you said, like now people are sitting on too much inventory and then that gets really scary and that you start to make bad decisions as a brand and you're like discounting everything and eventually impacting the brand that way. Um, How are you thinking in terms of terms of order volume? And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor, Recharge. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. As a fast-growing area in commerce, subscriptions hold tremendous opportunities to build a community of customers who share your values. Recharge is the leading subscription management solution, helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale subscription offerings. Recharge powers the growth of over 15,000 subscription merchants and their communities, turning one-time transactions into long-term customer relationships. Whether you're a direct-to-consumer business or an omni-channel brand, subscriptions strengthen your brand's relationship with your customers and make it easy for consumers to make repeat purchases. With subscriptions, merchants are able to experience predictable revenue, increased customer loyalty, and higher average order values. Turn transactions into relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Get started today with the subscription payment solution trusted by over 50 million subscribers worldwide by heading over to rechargepayments.com forward slash e-commerce leaders. And now back to the show. I think we're trying to be very 
inventory conscious and conservative, quite frankly. Um, the reason being there's, there's two. One, obviously, there's just a great deal of uncertainty. And we don't know what the future is going to look like. If we go into a, you know, nobody likes hearing the R word of recession. But, you know, if that's what happens, then you have to be prepared for that. And so if you over exert yourself, then you're going to put yourself in a tough position. Um, but, you know, trying to keep our inventory levels at a manageable level, I think for us is really critical. The, the second piece for us that in our industry, at least as a benefit is that because we are both a, a retailer as well as a manufacturer, we can turn those levers up and down based on what we're seeing from the macroeconomics. And so if it's tougher to manufacture some of those products, we have a lot of vendors that are in LA and different places where we can buy more immediate products, um, whether it be really branded or otherwise, and still have products that we can get to our customers. And so we are, we're in a good position in that if we're worried about it, we can play it more conservative on the manufacturing side, increase it more on the partner buying side and still have the product selection and inventory that we need. Um, obviously we like, we prefer when we can get our own developed products in front of customers, both from a financial, the economics of it are great, but also we love being able to leverage our design team to create great new unique pieces. Um, but obviously we have to be careful because you can't over inventory or that's going to sink the company as well. Yeah, for sure. Just in terms of like additional growth, I know you mentioned like you've been expanding into wholesale and like other third-party channels. Um, what, what else do you have your eyes on for 2022? So it's interesting. If you would have asked me this two years ago, I would have been pretty skeptical of the retail environment. Uh, but we are seeing some strong demand there. I think it varies by industry, right? You know, there are certain products, TVs and things that are, it's easier to buy because it's more standardized commodity, uh, or at least you can read the specs, right? Uh, from a clothing standpoint, there is a lot of value in seeing, touching and feeling the product. And so we are, so we are now, we now have three stores uh, for Ruli in addition to the e-commerce brand. I think our plan is to grow that considerably over the next five years um, in going from kind of a 90% e-commerce mix um, lowering that essentially because we'll grow the retail space uh, in addition to that. Uh, you mentioned the third-party channels. There's, there are a lot of channels. We have a presence through Amazon. Uh, Pinterest is seeing a lot of interest and growth through, through their platform. Facebook and Instagram now have their own shopping methods. Uh, even Walmart, you know, you can sell as a third party on Walmart. So there's a lot of there's a lot more channels. And because of the integrations, you know, we're a Shopify brand. Um, that's worked well as a platform for us not perfect, but works pretty well. But there are a lot of integrations that pull right into there that make the ability to sell on some of those third-party channels more realistic without reinventing the wheel, divvying up inventory, deciding where to allocate things. That There's a, a much better integration with some of those partners, which makes those selling platforms more viable. Yeah. And, and, and I, I would have said the same thing too before about like retail, um, in the beginning, it's just, um, I, I bet it has a great impact on your brand too, because like you said, they can touch and feel it at the same time, probably minimizes returns. I think that's the other aspect too. You know, that's, that's the difficulty of being in the type of space that you're in. How, how do you think about returns? Cause I know it's really difficult because it's like, you know, it is really important that, it, that the product fits, but at the same time, if you're not careful about how you manage that as a brand, um, you know, it's really difficult to continue to hit the numbers that you need to from a profitability standpoint. So how do you, how do you think about that? So that's a really important part of our business and how we manage it. You know, there's a, there's a balance between making it very easy because you want to get the product in the customer's hands to try it and see it. Uh, but returns plays a huge factor, both in, in the logistics of processing it, but also in your sell through and analytics, being able to know, okay, this is a great seller, but if the return rate's high, is it is, is valuable and profitable if you have to sell, you have to turn that inventory twice or whatever the case may be. Um, so we, you know, as a brand, we work very hard to make sure that the product and fit is correct, that it's a quality level that we're not going to deal with, you know, product quality issues, um, that the fit is on and that it works well. But at the same time, customers have this expectation now to be able to try it. And so we do, we partner with a brand, there's a, a great group called Try Now. They power our kind of try before you buy platform that lets customers, you know, quite frankly, you can buy anything you want and you won't pay for it until you decide what you're going to keep. Amazon came out with that model with their Amazon wardrobe, I believe. And there are a number of brands that do that. But we, at the end of the day, we, we like our chances when a customer can see and experience our product because it is good quality, but there's a cost to it, right? Because if we're going to agree, Hey, we'll, we'll ship you eight items, only pay for what you keep. And they send back six, it becomes an expensive process for us. But 
again, if we can have the product and the sizing refined to a point where it's it's less about, hey, this just isn't quite my style, or I wanted to try two or three different ones versus ah, it didn't work for me at all and I want to send it back, then we can mitigate the returns as much as possible. But it's always going to be the case. And it's amazing that, you know, in our industry, the return rates are, you know, 20% plus depending on the channel, just because people want to try it on. And then, yeah, what do some of the numbers look like on a try before you buy? Because like me as a business owner, I'm like, that sounds crazy. It sounds very scary to do. And judging by our conversation, I feel like that's something maybe you thought initially, but at the same time, returns are such a challenge potentially that it's like, all right, I'll kind of try anything. Like, how are you thinking about it when you implemented that initially? Yeah. So we monitor it very closely from an analytics standpoint. It has to work. The numbers have to back out or you might as well not even do it. And so we we were very, not skeptical, but mindful of the fact that, hey, look, our return rates are going to spike. And, you know, I'll give you some number. When, when, we, when a customer does that try before you buy piece, the return rate more than doubles. Um, and so we look at that number and that's a scary number to your point. Hey, that's really yeah, 40% plus based on, you know, the minimums you just stated. Exactly. And so, and, and that's a reality that really does through that channel, those are the returns. But the way we look at it is, okay, that's fine. But what are they keeping? Are they keeping more in this channel? And so what we found is, yes, they're returning more, but at the net result of it is an increased in terms of products kept and cart size and revenue. And so we look at that and we say, okay, well, yeah, they're returning this. And we factor in, okay, well, if we have to pay shipping both ways because they're shipping it back to us, we have to process it, get it back on the shelf for another customer buy. There are definitely some increased costs and labor associated with it, but we factor all of those in and then net out what the net result is. And it's still revenue positive to be doing that. And, and But like you said, it's scary, right? When you're looking at 40, 50% return rates, that's like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? But at the end of the day, if the customers are keeping more products and you're able to get more products in front of customers and the qualities there, they're keeping more and it's been a success. But yeah, my biggest piece on that, and I've told everyone that'll listen to me on this regard, you got to look at the analytics because if it doesn't back out and you can't justify it from a cost standpoint, then don't do it. How soon did you know? Were you just like freaking out for a month? I'm like, oh man, like what's gonna, like waiting for the invoice to hit or all the numbers to check out. What was it like on that initial month? You know, I don't, I don't think, so it's interesting because if you actually stop and take a step back and look at it, you know, we are as a brand, like every other brand, pretty much in retail, you have to have a fairly flexible return policy, right? If you don't like a product, you can send it back to us in 30 days and you're going to get a refund anyway. The try before you buy now, from my perspective, is more psychological than anything, right? It's just this idea of, well, I don't have to pay for it until later. So it makes me feel more safe, even though if you bought it now and returned it next week or in two weeks or in three weeks, you'd get the same money back. Um, so there's a bit of a psychology there. Uh, which is the biggest piece. And our question was really just, is it going to be a net positive? And, you know, we did make sure when we were partnering with with a third party to do this, that we had, hey, look, if it doesn't work out, if it's not working for our numbers, we got to be able to get out of it. And uh, they, the, the brand that we work with uh, has been very encouraging and helpful on that front. But yeah, we were, I mean, we were, we were checking numbers from day one, right? So I want to see the numbers. Well, you're not going to get any numbers yet because they just bought it yesterday. They haven't even got it. Okay, fine. Tell me tomorrow. Well, it's not going to be tomorrow either. <laughs> so it took a little while to get the 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 process sort of rolling. Um, but once we did, we've been very vigilant at watching those numbers consistently, making sure that it does back out. And you know, so far we were about two years in, and it's been a very positive experience. Wow, two years of this. Wow. So it must be working. Otherwise, you're just throwing money away, which. Doesn't sound like it's the case. No, that's very interesting. Do you run marketing with explicitly talking about this offer or is it more like people hit the site and then they find out about it? Uh, we did a little bit of both. I think it's it has driven some interest in the brand. We'll do some paid marketing that says, you know, try up to eight items for free, only pay for what you keep, things like that. There's just a subset of the of the shopping segment that, wants that extra comfort of, oh, I'm not going to pay for it. So it's okay. Um, but then on the site, we have some visibility. It says, you know, when you go to, to, to a product, well, you can pay for it. Now this dress is $48, but if you want to try now it's $0 now, and you only pay if you decide to keep it. Um, and so there's a, a very clear path that customers can choose from a take rate perspective. You know, I, I, a healthy majority still just buy the product outright. But there is kind of, you know, that 15, 20, 25%, depending on time of year, that feels more comfortable with that try now. And, and having that feature has been great. 
when you think about the pandemic, it was especially helpful just because people weren't going out. The stores were closed. They couldn't go. And so having that, you know, your, your dressing room or your trying on closet at home was a real big benefit, but we've still seen the numbers stay strong coming out of the pandemic with people going out. Yeah. Well, it also helps that the, um, the dressing room is dead. So many brands still don't even have them open. Um, which is crazy. Like I miss, I miss the, the, uh, the dressing room rest in peace till 2020. No, but that's, that's awesome to hear a perspective because I think a lot of people have seen this and, you know, you think of companies like Amazon running the model and you think, well, yeah, that's dead. Right. They can subsidize their losses. Like I can't do that as an up and coming growing brand, but, uh, no, thanks for being transparent and, and, and covering that. I think that's really interesting to think about. In terms of just like rest of the year, obviously continue to expand, continue to grow, but like, is there anything else that you're thinking about um, as we start to wrap up here for, uh, but for the rest of the year? Uh, yeah. You know, I think we, we've talked about channel diversification. I've had this discussion actually with a couple different leaders from different companies in recent months. And that is that, you know, to me, as much as I love the diversification, because I don't know how, I don't want to rely too heavily on a single channel. There's also an important element, which is being, careful about where your brand lives and where you do invest. Um, the example, the best example I could give right now is TikTok. TikTok has grown enormously from both a customer acceptance uh, and adoption perspective, but also from an interest level from brands, which I find interesting because obviously any trend that's happening, brands are going to take notice of. Um, but, you know, I think there's a very, there, there are a lot of marketing teams that are sitting down and saying, okay, well, we need to shift 20, 30% of our budget to TikTok because that's where everybody's doing it. Well, the reality is, is that from a, from a marketing standpoint, from a merchandising standpoint, from a conversion standpoint, that platform still has some work to do in terms of monetizing. And so, you know, my, my view is love the channel. I want to keep watching it. We have a presence there from an organic standpoint, but from a spend standpoint, you do have to make sure that just because there's a popular channel out there, doesn't necessarily mean that it'll convert in a way that you need it to. Um, and so just being measured and, and careful, you know, I think SMS, you know, we used to be, you, know, you mentioned it was pretty nascent five years ago. You know, we'd send out a text like twice a year um, just because, hey, we thought we should and it'd be kind of cool and maybe we get some good engagement. Well, now it's a huge percentage of our marketing budget just because it is more instantaneous, the ability to reach the customer. There's no promotions folders or spam folders or whatever else really. It's, you know, obviously if they're opted in, they can get the messaging. And so, just looking at the channels from an analytical standpoint, making sure that it fits with your brand. It's great to research them, but jumping full board on trends is is a risky venture as well. I mean, it is. It is. Like, that's the problem with trends, right? As quick as they rise, it's as quick as people forget about them. Um, I'd rather build something long-term and durable than just jumping on the back of the next trend. Um, I'll even say too, like me with SMS, that was my, you can go back and listen to podcasts of me in like 2016. I'm like, no, like SMS is not a channel because at the time there wasn't the right software to run it from like a compliance and just like, you know, the platforms that are at scale today, were like just getting started, but now it's here to stay. Like you said, and I think TikTok's going to be similar. Like right now it's just this trendy thing, but like you said, once they start to figure it out, um, I mean, that algorithm's insane. So once they get that dialed in for advertising, which I'm also on the record saying, uh, bullish on the algo, um, which I actually don't even have TikTok anymore. I had to delete it. Um, you know, for just to be able to continue to live my life. Time management. Um, yeah. <laughs> But no, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I, I, yeah, it's, it's a fine line, right. Of balancing like these new, these new unique ideas of like, you know, a quick win on TikTok or even like the try now before you buy, like it's a new thing, but also staying true to the long term. And I think you've done a really good job at balancing both. Um, and it seems to be working well, continue to grow despite, you know, everything that else that's going on and this crazy, I mean, what a time that you joined the brand too. Like, I don't know. Do you have a time machine? Because you, you transitioned from travel to e-commerce at the perfect time. And then, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we should really write down what you're saying about TikTok and, and save that for later. <laughs> well, don't, I don't know how prophetic it is, but uh, I was fortunate from a timing standpoint. Just absolutely love it. And, you know, it, it, like I said, very different world, but fascinating to learn the ins and outs of it. And uh, definitely grateful to the team that let me come here. And just the industry as a whole is it's fascinating to learn from and and talking to people like you that know this world and can, you know, that that's the last piece that I'll add that you asked me in the pre-interview email, but 
you know, one thing that I think is just so incredibly valuable is learning, sharing, right? Just resources with other people that are in the industry, lessons learned, what's working well for you? What's the technology that you think might bear fruits with your industry? I just think there's a lot there. You know, I'm, I'm of the mindset. I really like collaborating, even the brands that maybe have some competitive elements to what we do, just getting along in the space. I do think there's, if, if you're a good creative brand, you don't really feel threatened as much by some of the other ones that are doing similar things because they have their channel, their niche, and there's a lot of customer interest and appetite to go around. Um, but there's a lot of lessons learned from different groups that you can glean if you just have the discussions and, and listen and learn because there's a lot of people that are doing some great innovative things that maybe you haven't thought of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's huge, right? I mean, it's like getting having this podcast and being able to listen to it and then also being able to talk to somebody one-on-one and go a little bit deeper. I mean, even like this conversation, right? Like there's metrics, there's numbers that you're not going to share publicly in a podcast like this. Um, but, you know, to somebody who's in the exact same position as you or, you know, same on the vendor side, like you say, there's data points across multiple brands. So the trends that you can't see within your business, they can see across, you know, sometimes thousands, depending on how large the, um, you know, SaaS company is that you're partnering with. Totally agree with that. Um, you know, you don't have to take everyone's advice, but like, like you say, like you start to, you know, develop and you trust your intuition over time and you can figure it out. Well, Hey, I really appreciate you taking the time and coming on the show today, Chad, where can we go to learn more about you, learn more about Ruli, or let us know where, where we can find you. Sure. So Ruli is R-O-O-L-E-E.com. Um, pretty heavy presence on social media, Instagram, especially TikTok is nascent, but growing. Um, we have stores in two stores in Utah, one in Northern Utah, one in Salt Lake, and then one in the Phoenix area down in Arizona with a lot more to come. Really appreciate awesome. you having me. And uh, it's been a great discussion, Dylan. Yeah, we'll link that all up down in the show notes below. Uh, once again, really appreciate you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Waybreak Podcast. If you're not subscribed on iTunes or Spotify, go hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on future episodes. And if you're not on our email list, go sign up at wavebreak.co slash join. You'll join other e-commerce leaders at brands like Skims, Cartier, and Walmart, and thousands more learning exactly what's working in e-commerce right now. You won't want to miss it. Sign up at wavebreak.co slash join. It's free. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Waybreak Podcast. I hope you have a wonderful day.